Sanctuary with Guides and Interpreters. I am Tim Merriman, your host, coming to you from the Big Island of Hawaii. And I'm delighted to talk to an old friend and colleague from Austin, Texas, Clark Hancock, who is an interpretive uh, trainer and consultant and has had worn a number of different hats through the years. And we're going to learn about that. Clark, how are you? And what are you doing this fine morning in Austin? Well, I'm doing well right now, as with everybody else in Central Texas and most of the southern part of the United States, we're caught under a heat dome. So we are um, sweating our way through the, the the summer weather patterns we are now experiencing. Well, good for you. I <laughs> I can proudly say that we we think it's really cold if it gets below. Oh, you know, 72, 71, and it's really hot if it gets above 80. So, <laughs> Well, you all have picked a wonderful place to uh, live your lives at this point. <laughs> That's well, for sure. <laughs> we're farmers. We, we love our lifestyle out here. Did you grow up in Texas, in that part of Texas? No, I uh, I didn't get here until I had graduated college, university. I grew up in southwest Virginia in the uh, on the virginia highlands area in a small little community of about 500 people that was uh associated with a small liberal arts uh, uh college emory and henry college that my father taught at uh, so i grew up very much in a rural setting um right in the middle of appalachia right in the middle of the bible belt um very interesting area very lovely area very rich area uh, in terms of heritage um, that is so often overlooked what was your father's specialty mathematics oh my he was <laughs> he was he was a math professor um and because of that because of the time i was growing up this was uh he was also the one that got trained to introduce the first computer at that college. It was uh, back in the day when everything was mainframes and your connection to them was teletypes uh, using paper tape to record everything on. So that was my introduction to computers. Over the years, my, my mother became the head computer person as they moved from a a main uh, a teletype mainframe to actually a mainframe in at the college itself and she developed the computer registration systems and managed all that for the college and they they had moved down there in 1963 my father had grown up in baltimore my mother had grown up in missouri they met when my mother's family moved to baltimore for my grandfather's job with the u.s government he was a geophysicist with the USGS service. They met through their church, and the rest is history, okay, so to speak. All right. Wonderful. And did you have that issue that I had at home? Because I grew up in a small town in southern Illinois. Uh, my parents were not uh, educated. My mother had a high school diploma. My father went through seventh grade. And so uh, when I told them what I was doing for a living, my dad would say, so you're kind of on state welfare. I was a state park. 
And uh, I said, no, dad, that's, it's real work. He says, you just stand around and talk to people. I said, that's pretty much it. <laughs> and uh, I had enough good sense to not say, actually, that's how you've made your living because he sold lawnmowers and which largely <laughs> involves standing around talking to people. <laughs> it is. It, it's, it's when we start, I remember years ago when uh, right after I took the, the, that's the first, that CIG class back in what was it? Oh, two or whatever it was. And I saw my brother soon after that. And of course, whenever you're introduced to something exciting, you want to share that and just, oh, this wonderful, crazy thing. So I started trying to explain interpretation to him. And my brother is a rather cynical person. And he uh, looked at me and, oh, oh, you're just a Hollywood flack. And it was like, oh, no, 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 that's not it at all. And oh, wow. then I started thinking about it and realized that's exactly what we are. We're helping people see things in new and different ways. And we're also, we are the spokesman for whatever organization, community that we are part of. And that we are, in a way, presenting their point of view. And you can put the word sell in that if you want to. Sure. Sell, we're, we're selling that point of view. So. Absolutely. You have managed to figure out how to stay in Austin, Texas all these years uh, because you you landed there early on in your career and you are still there, yeah? I ran out. Of, I was on my way to – I was had graduated Tulane. You know, I went to school at Tulane, and when I was a junior in high school, I got the theater bug, uh, and specifically technical theater and lighting design. Wow. And – I wasn't, I'm not, uh, wasn't very ambitious. So my parents, while very supportive of me, they never tried to push me into any specific thing, except for you need to go to college and you need to be an Eagle Scout. So oh, those were the, the two things my father pushed me into. Right. And so I, I, one night I had been out being a teenager and came home late. My father said, we need to talk. It's time that you applied for college. Have you been thinking about any places? And I go, well, there's this or that. Well, we were down at Tulane where I went to graduate school and you seemed to like it. How about applying there? And I said, sure. Yeah. I did and got in. I mean, this is this is part of that. When we start looking at privilege, the concept of privilege, that's a perfect example of because of my situation, I had the privilege that other people did not have. And in the last few years, I've been coming aware of exactly how subtle those influences are on each one of our lives uh, and that we need to acknowledge that uh, and move on. But at, at Tulane, I studied theater and it was uh, technical theater. Um, it was a great program. It was a program that was in transition at the point. But I really fell in love with this idea of of creating ritual spaces where people can see things in new and different ways and that's so after school i was like okay what am i going to do for a living well you're in theater i guess that's the entertainment industry so i was on my way to california and ran out of money in austin and it was strange it was driving into austin that first time it almost felt like coming home which was and things to remember if you if people are visiting austin now they're coming into a population of 2 million people. 
when I drove in on that late February day, when the blue bonnets were just starting to bloom, the population in Austin was less than 300,000. And so it was a very different type of place than it is now. What has happened is, and I, I kind of way I explain this to people that are thinking about going to moving to Texas, be careful because Texas has a way of grabbing hold of you and not letting go. And the example I use, and I, I know you've been down here, so you've had this experience of trying to get through a cedar break, mountain cedar break, with all the underbrush and all that, trying to get through that. All the plants just grab hold of you and hold on to you and say, you're not moving. <laughs> okay, And that, I kind of use that analogy as an example of what Texas has a tendency to do to people as well. It grabs hold of you and says, no, we're not done with you yet. <laughs> right. Well, as you know, my wife, Lisa Brochu, grew up in Texas mm -hmm. and uh, had a horse farm out in Elgin. And I've been describing to her that uh, Tesla now has a factory out there in that area. And it's a whole different area than it was when she lived there. Uh, also, I lived in Austin for four months in 93, worked for Bat Conservation International and didn't stay there long because there were a lot of dynamics that were challenging, but. Uh, there are, um, it's it's looking at the, when we start looking at the different communities that we develop, that we find ourselves part of in our lives. And it's finding that place where we fit in or not necessarily fit in, but we provide a service that we are become part of a, a community of some sort um, and that we are valued, uh, we, we are valued or that we feel that we can provide value. Finding that right place, that right mix is in many ways, in my opinion, serendipity as we go through life. We find it and then when we we, we find ourselves there, in that community, one of the things as interpreters we have to look at is what is our role in those communities that we're part of? Uh, as, as an interpreter, as a guide, what are the services that we provide this, this relationships that mean something to us, uh, that, share our, that uh, share our values, share our worldviews? Um, and so the, the the role of the interpreter then in all these situations, part of that is to determine what is your role with, with that organization or that community? And where is your work? Who are you interpreting for? Are you interpreting within that community so that what you're doing is uh, continuing on the the value legacy of that community? Are you interpreting that community to people outside that community? That gets into the Hollywood flack type thing. Or are you outside of that community interpreting, or are you interpreting the outside world for that community you're in? Uh, helping them understand the heritage, the, the pressures, the forces of, of nature and creation that are affecting what can be a very isolated uh, feeling within a community. 
And the last one is, are you outside the community interpreting that community for someone in your community? Is that, what do you think of that? I'm, I'm kicking around those ideas and it's like, what do you think of that? Well, I, I, I think uh, most of us who've worked in this field did not study marketing, you know, and like you, I I did my I did a master's in botany after a bachelor's in zoology. Then I did a PhD in speech, but it was actually oral interpretation of literature, which is actually kind of theater mm -hmm. in the speech department. Mm -hmm. Because we sat on stools and delivered dramatic performances without a formal set or all of that, but with kind of the focus on the individual talking. And I was really aware when I got into nature center work, and you've spent a lot of years in a nature center, that I had to understand who my audience was mm -hmm. and I had to understand what my messages were and how they mm -hmm. would work with those audiences. And so uh, you were describing, I think, kind of the marketing decisions that you have to make when you get in one of these organizations and you realize that it's not generic. I, I can't just talk about everything to everybody. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not going to make many connections if I do that. I I confess I did not have any formal business training, whatever. And so National Association for Interpretation for me or the Association of Interpretive Naturalists before that was a place where I was hearing people deliver talks on kind mm -hmm. of marketing 101 and mm -hmm. message development 101 and uh and of course you said you took the certified interpretive guide course in 2002 who was your trainer on that it was lisa what was lisa? it was and that was it was uh that was a whole interesting thing because as you mentioned lisa was centered out of uh, texas area at the time and she actually had worked with the Austin, the Austin Nature Center as a consultant over the years. The reason I started working there was uh, I had been working in professional theater uh, for quite a few years and going from gig to gig. And a lot of those gigs, I was a, a on-call projectionist and stagehand, uh, which was where the, the major money was coming. And you start working in those areas. That's a lot of hard work. There's a a, a lot of uh, repetitious work, and you get to see people in all sorts of different situations. And it was very interesting, but it wasn't that creative at that level. In in the entertainment industry, we think about that as a creative industry, but when you look at the actual events, there are actually very few people in there that whose work affects the whole presentation which is the driving creative force behind any presentation. Um, at the same time, I was having, I was, uh, you know, picking up literature and stuff like that. One of the things I picked up was uh, copies of the old Whole Earth uh, Review, which was from the Whole Earth catalog. It was a mag, a quarterly magazine that came out and very much like the old Whole Earth Review, the, the, the uh, analog version of the internet. And, uh, it, in it, they would do reviews of various books or various products. And one of the books they presented was a book called The Tracker by Tom Brown Jr. 
Tom Brown Jr. is controversial in many ways, but one of the things that you can look at from his writing and his the story he the stories he tells is this connection with the natural world. And by reading those books, I was reminded of growing up in Southwest Virginia. Now, growing up in a rural area, as you probably know, being out in nature was second. That that was just part of life. You didn't think about it. You picked up all this stuff, this information, these awarenesses, but at the same time, you went, oh, that's just regular life. Yeah, who's, who's interested in that? I want fun. Right? Yeah. I, want, I, want, I, want, I want the new and exciting. And it took reading Tom Brown Jr. at that particular moment in my life to start becoming more consciously aware of humans' effect on the natural world. And not just human in general, but human-specific individuals. And how the attitude of the individual is paramount in those relationships. How they, how we as people approach our connection to the greater, greater world of creation. Very moving to me at the time. And I, I started thinking about, well, your work in theater, most of the time you're in dark rooms at night. You never see the light of day. Um, this is all outside. Your own interest in theater wasn't in that sort of production, even though you were, I was trained in that. It was this idea of these special places, special spaces that are created where people are asked to see things in a different way. In the terms of theater, it was just the, the concept of suspending your disbelief, placing yourself in a way where your mind is open to look at different things in different ways. It was at that time I also was working as a projectionist. I got assigned to this theater and I went there and the, the manager said, if you have any questions, ask our chief of staff. And that's when I met Frances, my wife. She was the chief of staff. And about a year or so later, we got married. She was working her way through uh, undergraduate school at University of Texas in zoology. Now, my background's theater, so I was in the arts. Her background is science. Uh, in, in zoology, the sciences. And as you probably know, and people that have uh, art degrees know this, that at some point they tell you, you got to take a science class. And the same thing applies for the scientists. At some point, you got to take an art class. And so senior year, she was getting ready to graduate. It was like, okay, what classes are there available that would interest her? Interest. And she picked one that was a seminar at Texas Memorial Museum, which is the Natural History Museum at the University of Texas. They were wanting to develop an exhibit on endangered species. She got into that, allowed to kind of audit the class, sit in on it. And going through that whole process of exhibit development and the research in necessary for content development and the like, I realized that the language that language and the effect of what this work was was the very thing that had fascinated me about theater this idea of creating these portals these places where you create the circumstance by which people can get out of themselves for whatever length of time you can and see something be introduced to something or be engaged with something out of themselves out of their heads, um, the outside world, the world that we we experience. My wife uh, graduated and uh, she got a job at the Austin Nature and Science Center as an instructor doing 
things like babies and beasties programs. And oh, as a good cool. husband, I volunteered. I came along as the volunteer in these programs. The, the Nature Center just moved from an, the, their historic site to a new site. And the support organizations decided that the best way to exploit that was with the newest fad at the time, which was robotic dinosaur exhibits. Oh, yeah. Those, we did that at oh, Colorado. Yeah. Dinosaurs alive. Dinosaurs, you got it. And they had done one before I started, before I was uh, connected with them. And then they had done another one where they, they brought in another one, which was prehistoric mammals, the giant mammals. And they hired tour guides and they needed an assistant store clerk. And I I was a projectionist. So my, my nights, I worked at night. So my days were free. So I hired on got hired on as a tour guide doing these robotic dinosaur tours and then also as the store manager and when that went away uh you know my wife got ill and her position was seasonal temporary that didn't have insurance and so we were looking we really need to have one of us has insurance so a position it was the um basically it was a maintenance worker two position at the nature center opened and this is a this is a municipal facility so those classifications are very important on how to get people into your organization and so basically it was a janitor position and i applied for it and they put me on and i was in that same position for 25 years the position title changed i never had to interview again for that position but what happened was the folks that had the lady that hired me cindy Cadritis, uh she recognized what my skills were and so she put me in charge of doing things like design the next robotic dinosaur exhibit that was in this massive tent to design the exhibit and so that's what i did that stage work it was all it was all the work from theatrical work and building the other part of that is the experiences I had in academic theater, one of the major parts of that curriculum was history of the theater of the drama, which is a, a fancy way of doing some really interesting world history studies through how communities, how civilizations share their values through both performance and written word. And it was that that was always something fascinating me. So designing that robotic dinosaur exhibit, it's starting to pull in the storylines, starting to look at the, the visitor experience. Where is the introduction? How do they come into the space? How do they prep for the space? Then what is the what is the narrative that you would like them to uh, that, that ties things together in some sort of sensible way? Um, we were using timeline as our, our, our narrative there. Uh, but those basic things are what we were created. Um, later on, we developed this. Uh, we also had this little, uh, there's a pond system, man-made pond system at the Nature Center that we were putting a trail around. And we decided it needed to be an interactive trail. Now, this is all done with shoestring budgets being supervised by a, a group of volunteers that were the folks that actually raised the money, the support organization, that actually also took over management of the project. And so we as staff, or me as staff, it was my job then to design this trail work within this very shoestring budget. And they decided they wanted audio units along the trail. 
and it was like okay this is back before modern technologies digital recordings in and so i designed this trail with these stops and these very simple wood structures but we got these battery operated uh digital recorder boxes that we worked out a push button type thing and what we we put in on the uh, push button thing and then we developed these wonderful scripts for each of these stops, about a minute long scripts of this wonderful little narrative of a guy named Eco Ernie exploring this thing. Oh, we were so happy, went through the whole process of digital recording, going to sound studios, getting an actor to do it, all that. And then after we got that up, it was Cindy, Cindy, my boss said, let's get this evaluated. So they contacted Lisa. We contacted Lisa about doing an evaluation. Okay, long, I mean, long story, way, way all over the place. She came in, and of course, Lisa did what Lisa does, which is exceptional. And she came back with a very insightful critique of what we did. One of the first things that stuck out is, your messages are way too long. <laughs> People will not stand there for a minute. And that <laughs> that insight, that just that little bit of insight that 10 seconds is about all you got. It's it's like that was eye-opening to me. And it was very good to meet Lisa, interact with her. And then she approached us and she was going, well, you know, I've been working on this uh, with this organization on developing um, some training programs. And would you all like to host one of those here? We just started one for uh, interpretive guides. And, and we said, yeah, sure, as long as one of our staff sit in on it. And I was the staff person to sit in on it. So I was able to attend one of the, it was one of the first CIG classes. You, you can check with Lisa on exactly which one, but it was one of the early ones. And I sat there in that class, I attended that class. I was also in graduate school at the time uh, in, in public affairs at the LBJ school and at the UT, University of Texas. And everything that we were going over in that workshop, that Lisa presented and the way she presented it, that same feeling I felt when I was driving in Austin, I felt like I was coming home. I had that feeling, I'm coming home. This is exactly what I've been fascinated with with theater, exactly what I'm fascinated in exhibits. It was, it was the thread, it was the basket that all fit into. And it was like, wow. And in that four day class, there was so much information conveyed, so many, so many threads offered to pull that you could look at that it took quite a few years after that for me to keep pulling on individual threads and start looking at it and just realizing how intricate and elegant that one, the CIG class, the curriculum that you developed was, but also the subject matter itself, how universal in the human experience this concept of interpretation was. She had such a complex schedule of things going back in those days because she was working as a interpretive planner and consultant. She had worked at the Austin Nature Center, so she knew people there and uh, got her way around that community really uh, well. And uh, she'll be delighted to hear this story. But uh, when she and I were developing the Certified Interpretive Guide curriculum, I brought chunks of it from my background to the thing. And I'd been to several of Sam Ham's training events. And, but uh, Lisa's mind is so much more oriented toward organization and making sense than mine is. Uh, 
the Disney people, <laughs> the Disney people in their leadership training describe two components, the yin and yang of the whole thing as chaos and control. And mm -hmm. we're doing some of these things. Uh, we sometimes described ourselves as me being chaos and her control because I had a lot of ideas, some good, some terrible, and she would all put it together and make sense out of it. And uh, you were in 2002, that would have been our second year of, of starting to offer CIG courses. We December 2000, we were in La Paz, Mexico doing that course as a test. Then 2001, we were trying to get a lot of trainers trained so we could get the course out on the ground. Mm -hmm. So 2002 was really the beginning of getting a lot of mm -hmm. CIG certified interpretive guide courses actually happening. And you waited about eight years to become a trainer. Yeah. It's interesting. I took it when the poetry was Perot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just chatted with that with Ren Smith, who came up with why and that. Right. So, but um, yeah, so I was I was at the Nature Center doing the work, really fascinated with uh, uh, pulling those threads and trying to to learn more about this myself. Um, they had sent me off to lots of conferences like the uh, Association of Science and Technology Center conferences and AZA yeah. conferences and things like that. And so I was kind of conferenced out and you just you get to a point where it's like, why? Yeah. Uh, and the NAI had its national conference in Beaumont. Yes, that one. And uh, it was like I decided not to go so that someone else on our staff could go. Uh, so I lucked out on not being at that one. Okay. And for those that don't know, that was the one, that's the notorious one where uh, the uh, caterer had problems and caused some health issues with, with participants. Uh, but uh, after that, we, we were going through some changes with the department, Parks and Recreation Department, and they were looking at developing, they had had a park police program the park police were actually transferred over to the regular police department. And so instead they were developing a ranger program, the concept of a ranger program. This is also right when Pard Man uh, Parks and Recreation Department management was going through a major shift. My director at that time was part of that, looking at how to prepare for that ranger program. And so she said, invited me into her office, said, I want you to go take the train. I want you to become a certified interpretive trainer and we're going to pay for it. Great. So that's when they they sent me off to uh, uh, Maine, which is where I, I met you for the first time at Acadia yeah. and had that wonderful experience of being not just learning the uh, the uh, CIT uh, program. I mean, the, 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 the how to teach the interpretive guide program, but also revisiting that interpretive guide program with all the other insight of the other participants, which again those threads pulling those threads more of those threads started coming together and after that i about a year later when i got my uh cert certification i started doing the cig program and i've been doing it uh two to three programs two to three trainings a year since then so it's are you doing them all live or are you doing any virtual i did virtual for a, for a couple of virtual ones i found 
that the technology I was the technology on it was not something I really wanted to play around with too much. I I enjoy the live ones much better. I think they're much more effective, though I'm I'm so glad that the virtual ones are available. And th this comes down to one of the things in interpretation that we're looking at. For instance, like with this podcast, most of the people who are going to uh, uh, interact with this podcast are going to do it by ear. They're going right. to hear it. Zoom meetings, we are still, we're limited to these squares, to these two-dimensional presentations of ourselves, And it is completely out of context. In other words, you're sitting looking at me right now with your background in your square but then around it is the room that i'm sitting in yeah. so there's a there's a disconnect there <laughs> okay right it's just the nature of nature of the beast but so for interpretation for interpreters that's one of our biggest challenges is how do we take people out of this two-dimensional environment or just an audio environment and have them actively engage with the world around them not just the boxes that we create and, and that's I, that's for me that the the live in-person trainings are so important that way um, I'm, I'm thinking about doing uh, more online stuff but I, it's just one of those okay let's get it together because it really is a different type of training okay yeah i i agree with you uh when the pandemic came along and National Association for Interpretation came back, my old job, you know, uh, yeah. was executive director of that for 17 years. And Lisa and I had always discussed that we felt they had to be live. And so when the pandemic came along, uh, our first reaction to there's going to be virtual courses is, guys, they're not going to be what they need to be. but I'm right there. I, I started teaching them because I can tell you in our little rural area of Hawaii, if I offer a course, I won't get three signups. Mm -hmm. and, and yet I have that hunger to stay involved with the profession. And so we started offering them and we get people from all over the world. And it's been fascinating to have somebody from Moscow, from the Philippines, from uh, Northern England, from all over Canada. And so and I, I've mentioned before in these podcasts that we had a young lady from Alaska who did her presentation on musk oxen, standing in the snow with musk oxen because she had a great Wi-Fi connection out there. And so it, it's been unique and different. And of course, it suggests to me that uh, here you're technically trained. I mean, I think technical theater is a great background for doing what you did at Austin Nature Center, planning mm -hmm. exhibits and uh, putting together experience with physical artifacts and settings with backdrops. I think of the, the things that are going on on national public radio, things like Radio Lab. They, they record people talking about what they've done in their life. One mm -hmm. of the reasons I got into this podcast is I felt like uh, Lisa and I wrote a book on history of heritage interpretation and, and, uh, in the United States, and I it sold dozens of copies. <laughs> so, <laughs> I have one of them. Yeah, I've read it. I've okay. Uh, okay. 
uh, I'm really aware that history gets history of a profession like that gets pretty dry, and I've been accused of it being too much the history of NAI and not enough the history of profession worldwide. But I didn't, I didn't have the resources at that time to do that. We stuck with what we knew. I always hope through these conversations that we reveal some things that uh, you just wouldn't get out of a book or you wouldn't get out of uh, those things. And so digital media and uh, podcasting and all of this brings us a different way to look at interpretation and history. I, I have to back up for one minute and tell you that one of the things that Lisa did early in her career that was uh, important to her was Tom Brown. She went to one of his workshops in New Jersey, <laughs> New Jersey Pine Barrens, and went tracking with Tom Brown. Uh, so <laughs> a little overlap. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's it. That's interesting. But it's well, and see what you just pointed out is another part of interpretation that we so often overlook. And that is while we're busy dealing with creating moments, it is the question comes back to and purpose. Why are we creating these moments? What is it that what is it that we want people? and share and that gets into this concept of heritage this this idea many different there are different people see heritage they hear heritage they hear history etc i uh, was going over van meter's work and one of the things that struck me was he was almost implying that heritage is actually the evidence of all the forces that have affected a particular point in space and time it is whether natural, human-made, whatever, it is those the record of that, of what has happened up to this point. Legacy being what we choose to share then of that heritage, just, just to use that as, as a working definitions. And the one thing that we don't do too well is actually actively preserve and investigate the stories of the past. And when you talk about this medium doing this podcast i i listen to podcasts and audiobooks all the time now that's my preferred way of taking in information that's just the way i am it is create how do we create this record this accessible record so people can investigate things others may that are their parents may have wanted to ignore or wanted to forget uh, an example I have from the Nature Center is when the Nature Center was first created in Austin, it was 1959. It's one of the older nature centers around. And when it started, it was a collection place for clubs to meet. Audubon Society, the, 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 the bird watching clubs, the, things like that. And they received all these donations from books that people had. All right. So they just massive library wasn't all, all that organized, but when you started looking at it, there was some pretty incredible stuff that dated way back, like to the 1800s and not early 1900s. And when you go into those books, the illustrations, the concepts, they're, they're all just incredible, but they're not available. And this was before online. As the years progressed, that library sat there and I would use it periodically and, I, and the like, but I noticed that nobody else up there was using it. And I was advocating here, we need to learn and explore this library. There's lots of stuff here. 
a um, few years before I retired, I went away on vacation and came back and the manager had decided that that was the perfect time to get rid of the library. So she packed up all the books and put them into, took, took them to the dumpster. And that just broke my heart. It just absolutely broke my heart. But it brought into focus something that one of the lead instructors and I, who had a discussion about that earlier, came up. He says, why do we need all these books? I get everything I need on this. Yeah. And it was, that was another eye-opening moment, is not only do we need to be able to present information to folks, we also need to actively preserve information in all its forms so that not necessarily the folks that we are working with directly, but the generations down the line will have access to it. When we start talking about interpretation, especially with that concept of heritage, that idea of the seven generations becomes very important. We are affected by what happened seven generations before us or even more. What is the effect we're going to have on seven generations down the line? Expanding our concept of what uh, the Long Now Foundation calls the now. What is this now that we are working within? And as interpreters, while we deal with the immediate moment, the interaction with those individuals, the purpose is to provide access to communal knowledge from the whole existence of humankind in many ways. It is our job to say, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Did you, did you see it this way? Or did you see it in that way? If you did, are you interested in that? Here, you might check what this guy did or this person did, or what was written about this then, or, or what that image shows, or what that painting shows. StoryCorps. StoryCorps, that's it. You got it. Okay, right. 60s and 70s, I'm in my 70s, and uh, yeah. things that you grab out of your memory sometimes come a, a little later than you expect. Um, I think it's fascinating because I've I've said on a number of consultancy jobs we've been on, Boy, what a chance to sit down with people in your community and record them either uh, as an audio file or as a talking about things. I, I do family history, and I'm aware that I can go back to uh, 1610 in Great Britain on my father's side, eight grandfathers back and tell you where he came from. And I've got no information about anybody between then and my dad. I've only got my dad's stories. And I I'm aware that when I was a park naturalist, I was on a state park that had Civilian Conservation Corps built most of the buildings on the property. And those guys would come in in their 80s and sit down and talk to me. I never had the foresight to take a cassette recorder and capture their voice talking about what it was like to be a 16-year-old farm boy who mm -hmm. was brought into that role. And they would sit, one guy told me, he says, well, for three years, I sat there all day long and I chipped sandstone into rectangular blocks to build that lodge. So the reason beautiful yeah. is I did a lot of chipping. <laughs> he said, not anything before they 
started teaching me carpentry and mm -hmm. and all this good stuff. And you think about that person, that 80-year-old person standing there looking at putting his hand on that rock and remembering. And it is that individual, that experience of that individual was his connection to the world, his life path, where how he he can look back there and see that as a as a landmark in his life path and move forward. And the challenge isn't just to record them. The challenge is to get it into it into actually utilize it, mine it and present it in ways to people that come after because the stories don't mean a thing unless they're shared. I agree. And and that's an interpreter. That's our job is to share those stories. I'm curious about what public affairs master's degree is. I noticed that in your CV you shared with me. Um, that's a, I got that degree from the uh, LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas. And it is, the LBJ school is similar to things like the Kennedy School or the Wilson School. Uh, specifically, it is programs designed for people working in public affairs, government, nonprofit sectors, et cetera. Uh, you'll find a lot of graduates from that in things, places like the State Department. Oh, in okay. state government uh, as a and as not just uh, aides but also as elected officials um, my particular focus was on local government specifically the local government of the austin area uh, and how that works it is um, a quantifiable quanti part of the 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 is this idea of quantifiable management how do you manage public programs how do you how does that all work how do you work with how do you develop nonprofits the purpose of nonprofits there is volunteerism training in there um, though those so it's it's anything dealing with the communal work of people how we work together as 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 folks and especially in the formal uh, relationships of government and and government entities well you do um because of your extensive background at Austin Nature Center, now as a consultant, you do interpretive planning consultancy and uh, what's the well, range of what you're doing? Right now, I'm, I'm uh, one, I'm lazy. That's to start things. Okay. So, uh, but it's, uh, it was interesting besides that CIG course with Lisa, she also came to us and said, will you host a certified interpretive planning course okay. at the Nature Center? And will you be the client? Okay. You know, it's, it's the way that those workshops work is there's a client that the different teams work on to develop a, a plan for. And yes. so, yeah, so I got to be the client. And then she did it again at one of our satellite facilities called the uh, uh, Sheffield Education Center, which is down at a place called Barton Springs, which is an iconic uh, uh, well, it, it's the defining geologic feature, uh, hydrologic feature of the uh, of Central Texas. We can get into all that at some point, but that that's that's a big can of worms there. But she did a training down there too, and I was able to. I was part of the uh, 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 client representative representation team on that. And one of the things that really struck me when we were looking at interpretive planner, especially the way Lisa presented, Lisa and you presented it in the 5M model, was that the, um, 
the interpretive planner should be one of the first people on a project. But then in practice, I see that that's not the case. And I'm going, okay, so there is this thing called an interpretive plan, which the certified interpretive program, the certification is focused around the development of plans, of, of concrete plans. Then when you look at the interpreter being on at the very first of a project and actually stays on throughout a project, what is the implication of that? And that means that the interpreter is there to be the consistency in purpose. They are the ones that help determine the values of an organization, help clarify what those values are, what the goals of a particular project is, and how those projects interlace with the fundamental values of the organization. And that's, for me, that was the message I was getting. That's why the interpreter is so important to be part of this long-term process that doesn't necessarily have clear deliverables at it. And so when I say I'm a consultant, that's kind of what I'm doing. It's I have I work with a couple of organizations right now where I am advising that helping them develop vision. And then from that vision, as projects develop, making sure that what is being developed, reminding them what their vision is, reminding them of what their purpose is. An example is this one trail, it's this regional trail project, and the folks building it, they're great, they're wonderful folks. And you go back and you look at why this was all developed, the, the organizing documents, all that sort of thing. And the mission is very clear, the vision is very clear. But when you're building the project, you get obsessed with the techno technology of building. And so when we've had openings of trail segments and we've asked people associated with project to do tours, most of these people, their tour is about how this trail was built, not where this trail is yeah. or the importance of this trail. And it is those sorts, and it's not something you did that wrong, you need to do it this way. No, it's it's you have to influence them. You have to be part of the team. You just have to be that Jiminy Cricket type person there that's, yeah, yeah. This is important because you're going right through the center of an aquifer recharge zone. Okay. And that it's under the stuff we don't see under our feet is very important. And just reminding people of why they're doing things. And for me, that the interpretive consultant, that's what the consultant does. It's it's more than just being contracted to put together a plan. Because I'm not a certified interpretive planner. And I I, as with most things, I've noticed that you can't you need to bring on other talents into a team. You need to have multiple influences. And if you can make sure your ego is placed up on the shelf as much as you can, so that you can bring, give other people opportunity to be creative, then the product isn't just a better product, but it builds the necessary community to sustain the project into the next generation, which is all we can really hope to do. Because the next generation are the ones that are going to decide whether to continue it or not. Okay. You've hit some key points because um, I co-taught the interpretive planning course with Lisa for about eight or nine years, and I learned so much from her. Uh, I would say she gave me pieces of it to teach that I could incredibly handle, but the truth was the course had to be out of her 
mind and her creativity. And uh, she always makes the point that so often the architect is hired, a building is designed, and then they say, okay, interpretive planner, come in here and tell us what to put in it. Put and, some signs on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. right. And people are in love with media. And so they'll go, well, we need a movie and it needs to be 20 minutes long and we need a topographic map. She always tried to back them up to say, let's revisit your vision, mission, goals, make sure mm -hmm. they're still what you want them to be. Let's do objectives that are measurable, that are mm -hmm. uh, a logic model that mm -hmm. actually considers what's the impact you want and then mm -hmm. what uh, outcomes have will lead to that impact. And then what are the outputs we have to create to do that? And and so often people who are getting a plan done just want to jump and talk about the fun stuff, you know? Yes. The, yes. And, the newest, the greatest, the yeah, the the exactly. you know, it's the, the 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 story I tell when I first started at the Nature Center, they had just uh this the support organization had paid for a, a new touch exhibit, Nature of Austin exhibit. And it had flip lids and it had touch tables and it had touch things. Uh, but then it also, this was back when Macintosh had just been introduced and they actually got two Macs of the first Macs and they had games on there. One was build a dinosaur. The other was dig a dinosaur or something like that. And it was fascinating to watch kids come into that space there's big space, all this touch stuff around, all this stuff to invite them on the natural world. And they all ran right to the computers and they would fight over who would do the computers. And you would have to pull them away from the computers to engage them somewhere else. And when it was time to leave, it was all a big dramatic event of pulling the computers. It took me about eight years, but I finally got those computers off the damn floor. Wow. And instead, you know, and we, we were able to change the space from one from this exhibit to what I, we call the naturalist workshop. And the concept was a working naturalist workshop. You have a question about the natural world. This is a resource you can use. You can come here. There'll be reference materials, both uh, artifacts and 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 manuals and There'll be microscopes available, my magnifying glasses available, those sorts of things. Uh, we even had a trade counter where people could trade natural items. But we did this all. We did not use computers. We purposely, the trade counter, we kept records, but we kept them on, on five by seven index cards. So there was the whole tangible thing of going through a card index to find the card. It's just those simple things of being tactile in as much as we could and get people to actually explore items and not these images on a screen. And and that was one, I was so happy as that developed over the years. That was one of, one of the things where I saw the greatest impact for our visitation uh, because we were getting people to come back time and time again with the trade counter. I watched these kids develop from coming in and not knowing anything to within two to three years coming in with pictures of incredible natural science collections that they created themselves, documented, post uh, documented, uh, learned from, all that. And it's just to watch that 
pathway of discovery where you have helped open the door and provided them a path to go along and watch them go with that is just the for me as an interpreter is the most fulfilling thing i've ever seen yeah uh, it is it, it is this idea of the work we're doing does make a difference to individuals okay yeah and i think a piece of that that we need to think about for the future is that uh, we're going through a period where everybody's in love with the me the media and with the technology that creates the media. But uh, I believe there will eventually be a return, even amongst young people who carry their phone with them everywhere and do everything on through it. I think there will be a return to the high touch environment. Uh, we're already, we're already seeing that, and what was it? Uh, Pine and Gilmore, the folks that wrote uh, Experience Economy. Right. Uh, their next book after that was called, I think, Authenticity. Yes, yeah. It was, it was taking that concept of what are people looking for, and they're looking for, and I'll put it in quotation marks, authentic experiences, something right. that they perceive as authentic. And part of the uh, evolution of that is something I see all the time now. And that is the desire. People are always wanting to go to big events. They want to be part of something special, the massive music festival, the 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 whatever the big thing is at that time. They want to go and be part of that. And those like music festivals are growing bigger and bigger. Uh, and in Austin, that takes on specific relevance because of uh, one of our most cherished places, a place called Zilker Park, which is where Barton Springs is. It's also the site of the Austin City Limits Music Festival. The, why this land was set aside originally was because of its natural significance. And now we're being overwhelmed with these large-scale events that seem to be out of proportion to the site itself. Uh, and so this idea of authenticity, and that gets us down to Okay, that's the big corporate world. That's the fad right now. How do we get people connected to the natural world and people connected to their culture, to their historic, to their their, their legacies, their their heritage, their not their their cultural heritage? And it comes down to providing smaller opportunities, especially in an urban environment. I mentioned Austin. I went up from three hundred thousand to over two million. It is an incredible to be witness to this transition and what the dynamic of that transition is. The environmental organizations I've been part of, like Barton Springs Association, our concern when it was first developed 40 years ago was as the city expanded outward, that edge. But now that edge has expanded outward quite a bit, but there's all this stuff internal, all the neighborhoods internal, all the watersheds internal to the city. So the challenge is how do we create opportunities, small opportunities, so people, as uh, Booker T. Washington once said, can find their true happiness in their own dooryard, can be out right outside the door, the creek by their house, the these natural places that are so overlooked that if we just take our time, if we slow down, choose to slow down a little bit and get out of our own heads, in other words, we have a tangible experience with the outside world, then that tangible experience feeds 
that intangible way that we see ourselves in this greater world of creation. Um, and so the work is no longer the big, the preservation, it's how to work with individuals and communities to actually take part in active stewardship of the world they find themselves in. I I think that's right. I I remember uh, East Bay Regional Park District and uh, Josh Bark and kind of the community that Jim Covell grew up in uh, in Oakland, Berkeley area, California. Uh, Josh Barkin was a musician, and I think he came from New York originally, but he in that environment, he did supermarket walks and he did gutter walks where he would take mm -hmm. people down the city gutters and interpret the ecosystem of a gutter. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we need to keep doing those kind of things, not go, well, that's passe. That's what they used to do. Now we, mm -hmm. we put on a virtual headset and do it. And again, in the CIG, the basics of interpretation the connections of the tangible to the intangible. What do we mean by that? And for me, the tangible is everything outside of ourselves. It's it's the everything that's coming in at us that our senses pick up. And the intangible is then how we process that. Yeah. What do you but think? It's, it's, it, but it is get the, that first step is, and I think what was it? Um, what was the name? Uh, Sharing nature with children book. Um, Cornell Joseph so Cornell. Cornell. Yeah. And in the first editions of that book, the current edition doesn't have this introduction, though the current edition is actually an extremely great book. The first one has a wonderful introduction on how to share nature with people or and just some basic things. And one of the first thing he has, engage the student first without delay. Get them outside of their head without delay. That's the first thing you do. And for me, that was so that's fundamental to everything we do in interpretation. I do hope that you and Lisa enjoy, and I know you all are embracing your 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 agricultural lifestyle at this point. And I I I I have to put a plug in here. Your coffee is great. Oh well, thank you. That's very kind. <laughs> we're uh, we're just starting to pick, and. Uh, We've been sold out for about five months, so it'll be good to have some more product to sell. But thanks again. Aloha. Aloha. Well, thanks very much, Clark, for joining me today on Reflections on Interpretation, Talking Story with Guides and Interpreters. Also want to thank Mark Stoffel for use of his beautiful mandolin music. This particular song was Driving Me Mandolin from his Coffee and Cake album. And I want to remind you that August 21st to 24th from 8 to 11 a.m. Hawaii time, Lisa Brochu will be teaching an interpretive planning course via Zoom. You can register and learn more about the course at heartfeltassociates.com. And my guest next Friday is Lisa Brochu talking about interpretive planning. So join us then, won't you? Thanks for joining us today. Have a wonderful week. Aloha.